Thanks for listening to the Refuel Podcast. Be sure to tune in every Thursday for a new episode. So what, what we're talking about is what are we doing this, this year? What, what does God have for us? And as I've been looking through our youth group and as I've been praying and praying, God keeps bringing me back to this verse. And the more I read this verse, the, you ever have something weird? In, I know you guys think weird things. I'm not the only one. I hope not. Uh, you know, you ever think weird things? Like, if the moon was made of cheese, would you eat it? No? Just me? Okay. Um, my mind kept going, coming back to this thing that I, I used to play with when I was a kid. And now that I have a daughter, I play with it again. Yeah, the best thing when you guys get older, much older and have kids, um, you're going to enjoy playing with things that you only played with as a kid. And if you're a big kid, you never get tired of this. And it's Play-Doh. So God kept bringing my mind back to a certain verse. And he kept bringing my mind back to Play-Doh. Isn't that weird that God would plant something like Play-Doh in my mind? Um, The verse that God keeps bringing back to my mind, you can go ahead and turn there. We're not going to get there quite yet, but if if you're one of those, you just got to be there. Um, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse um, 12. Um, But before we get there, let me kind of explain to you there is a problem, um, there is a need, and I want to present to you our problem, our need, the problem we want to solve this year. And the problem is a number. Caden's going to bring up the number. It's kind of maybe look like a random number, but does anybody know what this number signifies? 19,349. Anybody want to guess? The number of times Donald Trump tweets per day, no. <laughs> Avery, what do you think? opioid epidemic? Um, no, not directly. No. 19,349. Hours? No. Um, no. It's not a time measurement. I'll give you a hint. Oh, Josh? No, it's not. It doesn't have anything to do with deaths. Directly, I guess. Um, it's very important to you guys. What was that, John? Oh, John is very close. He said how many teens are in Huntington. I heard Cabell County, not quite. How many teenagers? I'll tell you because John was really close. I think I heard Tyler say Cabell County. There are 19,349 teenagers, grades 6 through 12, in the tri-state area. So those are, the, those are the schools that you know of, that you have friends in. So those are the schools like Midland and Huntington High, the middle schools that feed into them. They're like the schools like Fairland, Chesapeake, South Point, the private schools like Grace and Covenant, and the home schools. According to the U.S. Census data, in the, they call it the um, Huntington metro area, which is you know, Huntington, the Ohio people who don't know how to drive, and like into Milton, you know. So the greater Huntington, I'm joking about Ohio, I'm just Take it easy. Take a chill pill, guys. Um, in the greater Huntington area, there are 19,349 teenagers. So what we know is John 3:16, God so loved the world. That means God loved every single one of those 19,349 teenagers. And if we want a heart for God, we need to reach those 19,349 teenagers. But we've already reached some teenagers, right? Um, if, if you remember anything, you'll know that about a year and a half ago, we averaged about 50 people per night here at, on Wednesday night. Last year, 
beginning at the end of the, the spring, we were averaging about a little over 80 people to attend every night. So you guys have been really reaching out, and I'm proud of you for that. Thank you for doing that. That's a great thing. We kind of get to this point where we're like, okay, we've got a pretty big youth group. We must be doing a good job, and God must be really happy and really pleased. And to a degree, I believe he is. I believe that you know, the efforts that you've made to reach your friends for Christ, God has got, you know, brings a smile to God's face. But there's this tendency we have to be like, our job is done. We've reached people. But let me show you something. You can go to the next slide, Caden. Refuel has reached 80 of the 19,349. That's 0.42%. That's not like, you know, 42, 0.42, 42%. No, that's like 0.42%. So if that was a decimal, it would be 0. 0.0042. No, 0.00042. So that's not, we, have, we haven't even, think about this. Yeah, we've, I'm blown away by what you guys have done and, and how we've reached out, but we haven't even begun to scratch the surface of the heart of God for this area. Now, you may say, well, Matt, there's a lot of other churches in the area who are reaching out and doing a great job, and that's true. But according to census data um, and, and, and averages, all the churches, if you factor in all the churches in the Huntington Tri-State area, they've reached about 950 teenagers. That's including us. So all Christian churches in the area have reached about 5% of the 19,349 teenagers that are your age in the area. So you don't have to be a math whiz because I did the calculations for you. Do you know how many people are left to reach? Bring up the next slide, Caden. This is not a number I can remember off the top of my head. 18,319 I am so thankful for each and every one of you coming every week and bringing people with you. But I don't want us to forget that each of those 18,319 people are souls. That eternally, they have a destination. And it's either heaven or hell. So my question, you guys, maybe it's more, you, you, I guess you could yell out an answer if you want, but it's more for us to think about, is why are all of these teenagers, many of whom you will see tomorrow in the hallway, uh, many of you work with or play sports with or in, or in like a choir or band with, why are they not here? Why are they not being reached? And I don't want to be overly critical of me and overly critical of you, um, but if you were to look at some like, I'm, I'm a big like statistics numbers nerds, so if you're not, just bear with me, okay? But the number one reason that people give for A, not coming to church, B, not believing in Christ, is not because they have, you know, some sort of theological or, um, or academic issue with the Bible. The number one reason why people don't come to Christ and people don't come to church is because of the Christians that they know. And some of you may know that to be true. Some of you, it's all you can do to get yourself in the car and come to church because you've had bad experiences with Christians, maybe at this church, maybe at another church. For some of you, you've been trying to get your, talk to your friend about Christ or talk to your friend about coming to church with you, and the answer that you just can't hurdle, the objection you can't hurdle is, well, I know this person. They say they're a Christian, but they did this, or they said 
this about me. You know, what kind of scares me to think is that there may be people tonight who aren't here because of some of us who are here. So why aren't they being reached? I think maybe the first reason is because we've departed from God's plan to reach the world. You know what God says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5? He says that we are God's ambassadors, Christ's ambassadors, as though he were making the final appeal through us. So think about like a courtroom and the defense attorney makes his final appeal. You know who that final appeal is for Christ? It's us. It's me and it's you. And Sometimes we forget about that and that's why the 18,319 aren't here. Sometimes it's because we're not really being examples of who Christ has called us to be. You ever think about that? I think it was one of the guys on DC Talk. I can't remember which it was. Um, but he said, the greatest cause of atheism in the world is Christians who acknowledge Christ with their lips and deny him with their lifestyle. That's what an unbelieving world finds simply unbelievable. So there's, I, I hate to say it, but I think in many cases... These 18,319 18, people, they're looking down at us, and they're saying, why would I want what they've got? And the cost of that is incredibly high. Um, not to, and we're going to get into some hope here. <laughs> you may feel like I'm painting a very gloomy picture right now. Um, but the cost of our neg negligence, the cost of us not caring about these 18,319 people is incredibly high. Um, Last year, there were several teenagers who were in some of your classes, who were in some of your classes, read up here, who were in some of your classes, there were teenagers who were in some of your classes who were no longer with us anymore. Just this past week, there was someone, you're too young to know this person, but they were actively involved here in middle school back in the day. Um, they're kind of spotty coming in high school, and they've been out of high school for a good amount of time now. But yesterday, that person, they took their lives. They took their life. The cost of us not reaching the 18,319 is incredibly high. Now, that's, that's not something that any one person in here should feel like they bear the burden of. It's something that God has called us to do together, right? It's an impossible task for one person to save the world. There's only one person who can save the world, and who is it? It's Jesus. But we are his messengers. It's a hard task, and I understand how hard it is to be a teenager. And in 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul writes to a very young guy named Timothy, because that's 1 Timothy, and Timothy was a very young pastor of a church that had gone buck wild. This church was in the middle of what was considered to be a very pagan area, so they, there was all this immorality, there was all this terrible, there were all these terrible things, ungodly things going on around Timothy, and he's trying to lead a church with people that are called to be holy, and he's like, I can't do it, and Timothy wasn't necessarily like the cream of the crop. You ever feel like you don't measure up to others and you're like, okay, God may use like Alex, God may use Josh, but God could never use me because I come from a broken family. I'm a little messed up myself. God can never use me. Well, Timothy came from a broken family. Um, Timothy's dad was not a believer, and from what we read in Scripture, Timothy was raised by his mom and his grandma. Didn't really have a strong father figure in his life. 
Timothy was sick very often, so sick that Paul, in his letter, in this letter right here, he writes to Timothy. He doesn't just write like spiritual like tips. He, he gives Timothy health tips because Timothy's had all kinds of digestive issues. So you've got this weak-stomached guy from a broken home who's supposed to lead this church that goes buck wild. He's got it hard. And I know, as teenagers, you have it hard. I remember um, as a high school student walking the halls, the narrow halls of Grace Christian School, and I remember seeing guys that would, when it was, because we had, at our school, we had Bible class. You know, you guys have like health class, and we had a class called Bible class, and you would have to memorize verses, and everybody, you know, you'd have to take your turn and stand up and say the verses. And I, you know, I would walk the halls with guys who would stand up and say their Bible memorization verse in Bible class, and then in study hall, they'd talk about what they do with their girlfriends the weekend before. I understand how hard it is to be a teenager who stands up for what's right, lives what's right, and is a good example to others. It's a hard task. And when Paul's writing to Timothy, he, he's, he knows it's a hard task. And this is what he writes. He says in 1 Timothy 4.12, Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. You know me, I like to break up, I like to kind of break down these verses. First, he says, don't let anyone, don't let anyone look down on you. This word look down, it's got this idea of despising someone or shaming someone. You know what the world loves to do? If they know somebody's a Christian, if they know Kurt's a Christian, they're going to wait for him to mess up. They're going to, you, you ever feel like because you're Christian, your life is under a microscope? Or because your parents are Christians, your life is under a microscope. And every time you mess up, somebody's like, ha ha, gotcha. Saw what you put on your Snapchat story, gotcha. We, we live in a world where people are just so ready to heap shame on us. And I think it's sad that as teenagers, you guys seem to get shame heaped on you more so than, you know, one teenager does one thing wrong and it shows up in the news. And there's all these old people like, teenagers today just don't know how, you know, they just don't know how to act. You know, and, and they're, they're, man, you, you get a teenager mess up getting the news, everybody's wanting to pile on and pile on and pile on and pile on. But what God is telling you is he's saying, don't, don't buy into the story that you're substandard to everybody else. Yeah, it's hard to be a teenager, but you know there's stuff that you can do that old people can't do? You think I could, you think I could take a bunch of old people on an airplane this summer to a place where you're going to sweat like pigs and do hard work for God? You think I could take the senior citizens, nothing against the senior citizens, but you think I could take them? Man, there'd be so, the, the airplane would be so full of Ben Gay smell. You know? <laughs> And I couldn't take them, could I? I there, yeah, what, if I, what if we tried to start an online ministry to reach people online via social media? Are we going to get the willing workers class to spearhead that? Probably not. Because it'll be one of those videos of the grandparents trying to, trying to FaceTime someone. and Is this thing on? Yeah. There are some things that God has specifically for you to do because you're teenagers and you can do it better than anybody else. So don't let anybody look down on you. Because you're young. And then it says, but, that's another, one of these days, I promise, maybe this spring, maybe this fall, we're going to do our big butts of the Bible series. Because there are so many big butts in the Bible, this is another big, big butt. Don't let anybody look down on you because you're young, but be an example 
of a believer, and then he gives five yeah, areas in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. This, in, in, in my version, in the NIV, it says, but set an example. If you look the word up in the Greek, I'm going to go Greek nerding on you. If you look this word up in the Greek, it's written in the passive tense. Let me explain to you what the passive tense means. It has to do with where the action is. I've got um, Play-Doh in my hand. There are t- if I were to take this Play-Doh and just hurl it against the wall, <laughs> you could describe what I did in two ways. The first way, thanks Gabe, the first way that you could describe it is Matt threw the Play-Doh. That would be correct, wouldn't it? Or you could say it like this, the Play-Doh was thrown by Matt. In one case, I'm the subject. Matt threw the Play-Doh. In the other case, the Play-Doh's the subject. The Play-Doh was thrown by Matt. Just because the Play-Doh's the subject, did the Play-Doh throw itself? Did the Play-Doh throw itself? The reason the Play-Doh got thrown is because it was in the right position to where I saw it, I picked it up, and I heaved it against the wall. The Play-Doh did not throw itself. Set an example Think about this. Set an example is written in the passive tense, meaning it's not all on you to do this. It's something that God does through you when you put yourself like this Plato, when you put yourself in a position where God will get a hold of you and mold you into what he wants you to be, all of a sudden you're going to start to be an example to others. It doesn't start by saying, well, you know, Matt got on to me. He said I'm a terrible Christian. I just need to do better. No. What I'm saying is, let's all commit this fall to put ourselves in a place where God will pick us up, He will transform us into who He wants us to be, and watch what happens when others notice. Because when God makes His imprint on us, we begin to make our imprint on others. The next interesting thing is, it says set an example. This word for example, it's another Greek word. It's called typo. Doesn't that sound fun? Don't you just want to say that? Everybody say typo. Look to the person to your left and say, typo, typo, typo. It's just like, if I had, a, if I had a, like a little like terrier dog, I think I'd name him typo. You know, it just sounds like a little doggy, you know, like, like a little like, like wiener dog or something. Like, yeah, hi, hey, what's up, typo? But what this word typo, it's spelled T-Y-E-P-O. I wanted to be a youth pastor and now I are one. Um, this, this word is spelled T-Y-P-O. What does that sound like? Typo, type. This Greek word for set an example, it's the word typo. You know where else this word is used in the Bible? It's used to describe after Jesus had died on the cross and come back to life, he appeared to his disciples, and it's used to describe when Jesus showed the marks on his wrists from where the, where the nails went through his wrists and his hands. It's, it, it's meant to, it, that word is used to describe those marks. What this word means when you look it up in a dictionary is it means um, a mark or a stroke made by a blow. A print, a figure formed by a blow or an impression. When Jesus died on the cross and he bore your sins, the Roman soldiers, they took those nails. They weren't like little nails. They were about this long, about this thick. They were nails. 
and they took a big hammer, probably a nine-pound hammer, put that nail up, and they hit, and they hit until they drove his wrist via the nail into the cross, and it left a big mark. And what's so cool is the Bible says that Jesus will always have those marks. You wonder how much Jesus loves you. Just look at the marks. Look at the impressions on his wrist. And what this says here is set an example or make an impression, be an impression on others about what a believer is supposed to be. That's what it's saying. So when I kept thinking about um, impressions, I started thinking about, well, first I started thinking about Silly Putty. And you all remember Silly Putty? I couldn't find it anywhere. I was going to call it the Silly Putty series, but I couldn't find any Silly Putty. So then I thought, you know, Addison was playing with her Play-Doh. Anytime she plays with Play-Doh, I join in too, and I steal it all. Um, and, I, yeah, and I take over like a big brother. But um, I thought Play-Doh, because what do we know about Play-Doh? It's moldable. We're very moldable. Um, Play-Doh will make an impression of whatever is molding it. And when we let the world mold us, we have the impression of the world. And when we let Jesus mold us, we have the impression of Jesus. And what I also know is there's nobody here, and there's none of the 18,319 people who are not given an impression when we come in contact with them. So you think you're just getting your gas at Speedway. You think you're just talking to that person that sits behind you in your new English, AP English class that you're going to have this year. You think you're just, you think you're just telling them about how, how annoying your teacher is and you're just kind of making small talk with them. No, you're making an impression on them. You think you're just stretching it out with your, with, with your football buddies before a game. You're making an impression. You think you're just rolling your eyes at your little brother or your little sister. You're making an impression. Never forget that. You're making an impression. So what we're going to do over the next five weeks is we're going to talk about each of these areas in which we as Christians need to allow God to transform our lives, make us more like him, so that we leave the right impression on others in these areas. We're going to talk about speech. What impression do you leave with others by the way you talk? You know, I'll be honest, I've been... I hang out with you guys a lot, and there's sometimes I, I kind of grimace, I kind of wince because of some of the language and some of the words that I hear. We want God to transform our speech. There should be difference, a difference in the way a Christian talks. And maybe people look at us and they say, why would I want to be like you? You don't talk any different than me. So we need to transform our speech. That's going to be what we talk about next week. Um, We need to transform our conduct because we make an impression with our conduct. Living different versus blending in. If we're going to the same parties as the people we're trying to reach, we're not going to reach them. Because there's going to be no reason for them to transform their lives when we haven't allowed God to transform our lives. If we don't demonstrate self-control... And every time the smallest little thing happens in our life, we fly off the handle and rip everybody a new one, or we we sink into the deepest despair. If our life isn't different, if our conduct isn't different, and we aren't molded into what God would have us to be, what impression, what impression does your conduct leave on an unbelieving world? Here's a hard one. Love. How has the way that you love or don't love made an impression on others. 
Yeah, it seems to be like a common thing now for um, people to do. Um, I think it's a shame that it is, is to keep lists of people that you don't like. I think they call them hate lists. How is that setting an example, being an impression of the believers? What I'm, what I'm praying happens over the course when we get to the, we're going to have the love lesson. <laughs> when we get to the love lesson, what I pray is that God transforms our hate lists into hit lists. Not of people we want to kill. <laughs> You're not Guido working for the mob, okay? But what, I, what I'm praying that God does is he transforms our hate lists of people that we don't like and despise. He translates our hate lists into hit lists of people we want to see reached for Christ. In faith. You know what I think is a shame? Is that there are people who have like intellectual issues with Christianity. You know, there are people that think that... Um, Maybe science and the Bible don't jive real well. Um, there are philosophers that, 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 that you, you, and by the way, just because you guys are in middle school and high school doesn't mean you guys can't think. And I know so, yeah, there are some of you, you're, you're like, you know some people who they, they've got some serious issues with Christianity, some serious doubts with Christianity, and they're asking you questions. And they're saying, how can a loving God wipe out an entire nation? And we're like, um... Uh, um, that's a good question. There's nothing wrong with having to look up the answers. But can I tell you this? This, this, this year, this school year, we're not going to check our brain at the door when we walk into the youth building. We, I want this to be a place where you build your faith so that you can share your faith. And sometimes the impression we leave is that it's all about feelings, and it's all about feeling good about yourself when you come to church. It's not about feeling good about yourself. It's about realizing how big God is and that no matter what problem you have, no matter who breaks up with you over the course of the school year, you know, no matter what happens in your family, that God is your rock. And even when you're sad, he's still your rock. And even when you're angry, he's still your rock. We should set an example for others that when they see us going through a crisis, yeah, we cry, yeah, we get mad, yeah, we get sometimes into despair, but you know what? We never lose grip on our faith because our feelings don't determine our faith. Our Savior determines our faith. And then the final area that we're going to look at in this five-week Plato series um, is the area of purity. Um, and I, I know this can be kind of like a touchy subject because it gets into the whole, you know, it gets into the physical and it gets into the, you know, the, the, the sexual. But, hey, guess what? We set an impression on others by the way that we relate to each other to the opposite sex. And how are we leaving an impression? How are we leaving an impression with the way that we handle our physicality? Um, so those are the five areas. What I want you to do, and, and, and I, yeah, we're going to kind of wrap this up, but I'm asking you something. I'm asking you something. I want you to allow yourself to be transformed into the image of Christ as we start this school year. That's what, I'm, that's what I'm asking, and that's what I want for you, because if we want to reach people, we've attracted a crowd. Like, we've, we did it, you know? Like, we, we've got a big youth group, wow, you know? And as, as uh, Chris Farley would say, well, whoop de freaking do I think is how he usually says it, or something like that. Um, we've attracted a big crowd, that's great, but have we reached anyone? Have we reached anyone? There are two, um, <laughs> there are two questions I want to ask you. And um, 
and, and don't answer these, but I want you to think about this personally. Here's the first question. Um, the first question is, are we leaving the wrong impression? The people that come in contact with me and with you, the people that we see on a daily basis, the people that walk into our youth group, the people that you're on sports teams with, are they not here because of me? Are they not here because of you? Are we leaving the wrong impression on people? What I want to ask you to do, and I'm asking each and every one of you to, to commit to this and to join me, is over the next five weeks to come to youth group with an open mind and a tender heart and allow God to expose any area in your life. And I'm going to do this too. I'm making this is a joint promise here. And I'm going to expose every area in my life to God. And I'm going to ask him to show me where I need to change and to change me, to make me like him so that I can reach others. So I'm asking you, will you join me? Will you approach this not as just a, oh, another year youth group? Will you, will you say, God, I want you to change me, and I want each of these five areas in my life, whether I think I'm doing good in these areas or whether I think I've screwed up in these areas, I want you to transform each of these five areas of my life so I can be a good witness for you. We can attract a crowd and not be Christ-like. But if we want to change people's lives, we have to be conformed to the image of God. So are we leaving the wrong, imp the wrong impression? The next question is, are we even leaving an impression at all? And this is what I fear is our struggle. Are we even leaving an impression at all? There is, very, there is great power in coming together as a group and coming together as believers. And I, I think it's important on Wednesday that we get together. We build each other up and we encourage each other. But do you realize... This is, this is nothing earth-shattering. Do you realize the people that have yet to be reached are not in the circle tonight? The people that have yet to be reached are getting their school supplies together. They're getting their backpacks set by their bed. If it's a girl, she's picking out what outfit she's going to wear tomorrow. If it's a guy, he doesn't care anything about that. Do you realize the people that we're trying to reach are not here? So we have to intentionally resist. There's this gravitational pull for us to be, you know, the Bible says, Jesus tells us we're supposed to be fishers of men. That's not like a, that's a metaphor. It's not like literally you're supposed to fix people. I mean, there'd be one way to get people to church. I mean, you just get the fishing rod and you, you just yank them into church. That's not what he means. He means we're supposed to reach out to others. But there's a gravitational pull in every church, in every youth group, to, to, to revert from being fishers of men to being keepers of the aquarium. You know what I mean by that? Rather than reaching out we preoccupy ourselves with whether or not we enjoyed Matt's lesson. Or we preoccupy yourself with who's going out with who. We preoccupy ourselves with whether or not you, know, you particularly care for this person in the youth group on this particular day when there are people that need to be reached. Are we pushing against that gravitational pull? Because here's what happens. When we stop being fishers of men and we start being keepers of the aquarium, you know what happens? We turn on each other. Because God did not design us to just stare at each other. He designed us to make disciples. That's what you're supposed to, that's what we're supposed to do. That's what he designed us for. So this is kind of a, maybe a, I don't want to say it's a huge shift. Maybe some of you could look at this calendar and not even notice it. Um, but what we've done, what we've done is 
usually we have two events every month, two like big youth group, semi-big youth group events every month. What we've done is we've, rather than having two like medium-sized youth group events every month, what we're doing is we're having one big youth group event every month because what we've decided is we need to stop when the rest of the world is out there on a Friday night and we're huddled together in here, that means we're not reaching. So what we're going to be doing, we're going to have, by the way, we're going to have fun this year. We're going to have a lot of fun. But what we're doing is we're going to have one big youth group event every month, and these big youth group events are going to be designed not just to have fun. I mean, wherever we go, we have fun. But these, group, these youth group activities are going to be designed to reach people too. That means when we have a drop-in night, we're going all out. And we're going to make it the best, like, we're, like it's going to be drop-in night on roids. And you know what we're going to do in the middle of the drop-in night? We're going to take a, we're going to pause for five minutes. We're going to share a verse and invite people to come back to youth group on Wednesday so that we can reach people. That means when we go to Kings Island in October, we're going to rent the biggest bus Spring Valley uh, Charter can give us so that we can put as many of your friends who don't come to church on it with you so they can realize that, I mean, we're not totally normal, but we don't handle snakes, you know, and, 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 and they can come to youth group. Um, everything we do, we're going to do it together. We're going to enjoy being together. We're still going to have life groups. We're still going to have tag. We're still going to have Wednesday night. But when we do an event, we're going to do it not to keep the aquarium. We're going to do it to fish for people because there are 18,000 319 people that need to be reached. Um, I'm going to kind of end with this. I'm in seminary, which is usually kind of a snooze. I, started, I, I had to read this book for seminary, and he started this chapter with a story. It's like a, a, an analogy, a dream, you know, a dream he had that I can't get out of my mind. And I want to read to you this dream, and I want you to put yourself in this position. This guy says, one night I had a dream. A woman clutched a little girl struggling to hold her child's head above the water. Nearby, a wave plunged a man into its salty depths. He choked for air as he thrashed his arms against a ceiling of water. All around, the ocean churned with drowning people grasping for air and desperately trying to push their heads above the surface. Their screams were doused by the roar of the relentless waves. Their cries caught the wind, but only in vain. They were alone in their terror with no help in sight. Then a huge rock appeared, and a voice called into the darkness. People began crawling up the rock's craggy sides to safety. But when they got to safety, something happened that drove me almost goofy. The people who emerged from the waves got busy. They got involved in building rock gardens, rock lives, rock jobs, listening to their rock music and going to rock meetings where they talked about the people who were still drowning in the ocean. But nobody went back to the water's edge to help. Isn't that a sad assessment of where we are sometimes as a church and as a group? Our clothes are still wet from the sea that we were sinking in before Jesus found us. And as that moisture drips off of us, we forget about the people who are still drowning in the ocean. Can I tell you this? There are 18,319 
people who are your age, who unless somebody shows them the love of Jesus and shares the gospel of Jesus with them, they're not going to know the hope that lies within you. So what I'm asking you to do, I'm begging you to do, this is our vision, is that God would transform us and that as he transforms us, he transforms others. God's not going to be able to use you. He won't use you, I should say, until he transforms you. You want to know why? Because you're still harboring the hurt that somebody did to you in your heart. And you know what we learn is that hurt people hurt people. When you allow God to change you, what you learn is that changed people change people. Let's let God put ourselves in a place this year where God can change us. And as he changes us, watch him through us change others. Um, What I've learned is I can't be a youth pastor to 80 teenagers. There are too many of you. And I feel like sometimes I shortchange some of you because I feel like everybody's having so many issues and I'm trying to go help this, you know, go be with this person for this issue and this person for this issue. And I will never, whether we're, we have 80, there's 80 of you or 200 of you, I will never, ever, ever, ever stop trying to be there for all of you. But what I've learned is if we want to reach the 18,319 people, we can't have one youth pastor. We have to have 80 youth pastors. That inside each of you, is a youth pastor that God wants to use to reach your circle of friends, to reach the people that you come in contact with, with the gospel. So tonight is my ordination service for each of you. (laughs) You're all pastors. Don't go marrying anybody. (laughs) But you're all youth pastors. Wherever you go tomorrow, whether you're a freshman at Midland and you're just hoping to not get a swirly, or whether you're a senior and at the top of the totem pole, wherever you are tomorrow, remember that when you walk the halls of the school, you're a youth pastor. God has called you to live a life above reproach and a life that changes others. So what I want to do um, tonight as we pray, um, we're going to pray, have a time of prayer for the school year, and then I'm going to let you guys leave. Um, As you leave, each of you gets a piece of Play-Doh to take home. Um, Some of you get the actual Play-Doh, by the way, I don't want to steal the moment, but some of you get the Play-Doh brand. Some of you get what I ordered on Amazon, which is kitty dough. (laughs) It's kind of the generic. It doesn't smell good. Um, But um, each of you are going to get a little thing of Play-Doh. I want you to keep this by your bed. I want you to keep it somewhere. And over the next couple weeks, I want you to be praying that God transforms your life, that you will be an impression of Christ on the people that you come in contact with. Thanks again for listening to the Refuel Podcast. If you have any questions or would like to review the notes from this podcast, be sure to download the Refuel app from the App Store on any mobile device.